0: And the word of God reads: Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with his son with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wife. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down before to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to, to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. <clears throat> then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and even the stars were bound down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his fathers kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: This morning, we all got an extra hour of sleep. Well, that is if you planned properly. Uh, You got an extra hour of sleep. Changing our clocks is a uh, biannual uh, tradition for most of us. Um, While we're used to this tradition, can we cut that feedback? That's really annoying to me. I don't know about you guys, but it is to me. Um, So we're used to this tradition, our bodies still have to go through that process of changing. I don't know about you, but I woke up uh, earlier than my alarm uh, this morning as a result of that. The external clock's change doesn't automatically result in the internal adjustment of our body's clock. It won't take long, maybe a day, maybe two days or three, for us to normalize our schedules but what if the change was more drastic? Suppose you move from New York City to, let's say, Portland, Oregon. That's a four hour time change that you would have to adapt to. And so it would take a little bit longer for your internal clock to uh, shift and adjust. Or what if you were so lucky as to get transferred in your job to Honolulu, Hawaii, and to work there. Now, that's a six hour time change that your body would have to adjust to. Or, how about going on a mission trip to, let's say, Sydney, Australia? A 13 hour time zone shift for you and for your body. I think you get the point. The greater the time zone difference, the longer the adjustment period for your body to adapt to that change. And what is true of our physical bodies is also true of the spiritual life. The further a person drifts from the daily vibrant walk with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the longer the reset in the spiritual walk. Some of you have gone through those deep spiritual valleys, and you know... Uh, what I'm talking about. This morning, we're going to look at two families, Esau's sons and Jacob's sons. One family had no relationship with God. Even though their father had been raised in a godly home, for the most part, they were not a spiritual family. The other family had seen a radical change in their father spiritually. They had seen the the work that God had done in him, this new spiritual condition that he was in. But the many years of living with a father who hadn't been that spiritual was hard to overcome in the new ways that they were being taught how to live. Letting his newfound faith become a reality amongst them was not happening the way that it should. We're talking about Jacob and Esau, twin brothers raised up in the same home, but with two different endings to their stories. By the time we arrive at Genesis 36 and 37, where we are this morning, their parents Isaac and Rebekah are deceased. The two brothers who were once sworn enemies have reconciled. And our text from these two chapters, chapter 36 and chapter 37, give us a solemn picture of the results of the choices that these two individuals, these two parents, these two fathers have made and are continuing to to make even in these two chapters. So our theme from this passage this morning states, when you fail to consider God at the center of your life, even when he has revealed himself to you, you're going to mess up your life, you're going to mess up the lives of those around you. If you do not make God central to all that you do in how you live, Even if you have known him or you've known about him, you're going to mess up your life. But it's going to have a greater impact in messing up the lives of the people around you. So let's take a look here. And we're going to begin in chapter 36. I know we read the beginning of chapter 37, but we're going to start in chapter 36. Where we become acquainted with Esau and the family of Esau. What we... Read in that chapter seems harmless enough. Certainly, it is far less dysfunctional than what we're going to see in chapter 37 with Jacob's family. Still, as we read through the the 36th chapter, what becomes apparent is the emptiness of Esau's sons. Their life is empty. What appears to be a normal genealogical presentation that flows through that whole chapter morphs into a tragic spiritual loss, if you read it properly. It all begins in verse 1 and verse 2. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Now this is the next to the last of what are known as the Toledot or the the, the generation uh, sections in this book. There are ten of these, this is the generation of, or this is the account of, uh, sections that make up the book of Genesis. And this is the next to the last one. The last one we will see when we get to chapter 37 with Jacob. So this is the generation, this is the the life, the account of Esau. We have already seen what the scripture says is the generation of the heavens and the earth. This is the generation of Adam. This is the generation of Noah. This is the generation of Noah's sons, of Shem, of Terah, of Ishmael, of Isaac, and now this is the generation of Esau. What do we know about Esau that we've seen so far? Well, Esau was the firstborn son, the first of the twins that was born to the father Isaac. He was a hairy child, and he continued to be hairy for the rest of his life. He was a hunter, his father's favorite son, because of the game that he brought in. We know that he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew or porridge or pottage there. We also uh, know that there was a really bad Halloween trick played on Esau by Rebekah, his mother, and his brother Jacob, when they stole his blessing that was to go to the oldest son. As a result of that, we know that he swore to kill Jacob. But then Jacob flees and spends 20 years away, and when Jacob returns to the land 20 years later, instead of Esau killing Jacob as he said he was going to, he runs to him, throws his arm around him, and gives a great big hug. Does that mean, though, that his heart has changed? Was his heart now right with God? Well, let's see what clues we can glean from this 36th chapter of the book of Genesis. First, I want you to notice how Esau's choices caused a forfeiture of the covenant. He forfeited the covenant by his choices. And yes, that was true when he forfeited his birthright by selling it for just something to eat. But I'm talking about what do we see here in the 36th chapter that tells us that he forfeited his part in the covenant blessings that were to uh, come through Abraham? You might not pick it up right away, but if we were reading down through this, when we come to verse 6, the light would kind of go on. It says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all the property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. Aha! That's where we see what's going on here. You see, the Abrahamic promise that God had given, that Abrahamic promise was for them to live in the land of Canaan. Part of the, the promise then was that if they obeyed God and they lived in the land, they would be blessed by God. For Esau to pack up and to leave the land of Canaan and go off to a whole another place, was as serious as it was for Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Canaan has become, in the book of Genesis, the new garden. It is the the new place, a, a land like paradise that flows with milk and honey. Esau, having sold his birthright first, lost his blessing second, and now... He has made a choice to move out of the land of promise, out from under the blessing that could come from God, which excludes him then from the Abrahamic covenant. Well, we can look back from our new covenant vantage point, and we can say, well, that was God's ultimate purpose. Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Yeah, we need to understand that God didn't kick Esau out of the land. Esau made these choices. He made the choice to sell his birthright. He made the choice to leave the land. If you think back to what we've covered so far, you remember the situation with Abraham and Lot, where their possessions were becoming too much for them to stay together, and so they were going to separate, and Abraham says to Lot, look to the north, look to the south, Look around, and you pick where you want to go, and I'll go to the opposite area. Where does Lot choose to go? Not anywhere in the promised land, but to leave the promised land across the Jordan and go into the land of the plains, which, as we know, turned into a very bad situation for him. Well, now Esau is making that same choice. Abraham had offered Lot the land, Esau has the opportunity to just move into another part of the land of Canaan. But Esau makes the same foolish choice. Therefore, he forfeits any right to receive the covenant blessing. But the second thing that we notice, how Esau's choices caused a fruitlessness, a fruitlessness for the covenant If you look at Esau, and it looks like Esau has received the blessings. He has a lot of property. He has a lot of possessions. He has wives. He has children and grandchildren. He has cattle. He has successfully displaced the Horites, and he's taken over the land of Seir. He's a great chief. We know that he has an army of at least 400 that are following him. Just listen to what we read in verses 7 and 8. For their possessions were too great for them, that is, Jacob and Esau's, for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourners could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. That's the rub, isn't it? You see, Esau has shared in the covenant blessings because he had remained in the land. God had told Abraham and Isaac that their descendants would be blessed, along with all the tribes and nations of the world. That kings and rulers would come from them. Esau gets to enjoy those benefits, just as many people on this planet today continue to enjoy the benefits that God gives in spite of the fact that they are in rebellion against him. But where did he end up? He ends up in Edom a land of vast wilderness areas. How difficult it must have been to maintain his herds, his sheep and his cattle. He is in a land of nomads, a land of wilderness. And even though there are many sons and daughters, grandsons are even mentioned in this text, what is missing is there's nothing substantial that's said about any of them. The best that we can do in terms of saying anything about any one of them is that while one of them was out caring for the flocks, he happened to stumble across some hot springs. That's all that is said of all of these children, these grandchildren, of all of his family. There is nothing recorded. They have no history. They lived and they died, and that is all. Their lives are barren, fruitless, empty. You know, without Christ, isn't that true of the vast majority of people in this world? You can't even say with Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. The most that we can say about the vast majority of human beings in this world is I came and I died. And that's it nothing more, such fruitless, empty lives. But there's a third thing that we should notice, how Esau's choices caused a faithlessness of the covenant, a faithlessness. You know, I know we didn't read chapter 36, but if we had, you may have noticed that not once in the whole chapter, not once in all the verses in chapter 36, is God or Lord or any name related to the divine mentioned. Not at all. Nothing. Now, you might not think that that's really that important, except if you look at the whole book of Genesis, over 400 times God or Lord is mentioned. And here we have a whole chapter without any mention at all. A whole lineage from Esau living and dying without God in their lives. That's a sad situation, but it's similar, again, to the vast majority of people who live in this world today. The majority of human beings here in the United States, progress through life. And the only time that any thought of God goes through their mind is when they're cursing. They're born. They're raised up in the school systems. They graduate from high school. They may move off to a college campus or onto a job with little or no thought about God. Their lives are their own lives to live as they wish, for good or for evil, but without faith. There's a very telling statement in verse 31. It says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. What a harmless statement that seems to be. But those of you who are familiar with the book of Judges, you'll remember that there was no king in the land is in the land of Canaan, where the Israelites were. Why? Because God was to be their king. But they would forget God, and he would send disasters on them, and then they would cry out to God, and he would send them a deliverer, and this goes on and on throughout the book of Judges. You have Barak and Deborah, you have Gideon, you have Samson, you have Ehud, and so many others, but no king. God was supposed to be their king. God was the one that they were supposed to trust in. And then in the book of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel speak to Samuel, who is the last of the judges. And they speak to him and they beg for a king. Now what is the reason that they ask for a king? They ask for a king because they want to be like the other nations around them. They don't want to be a king because they don't want a king because they want the king to lead them into a glorious relationship with their eternal God. They want a king so that they can be like the rest of the nations. That's the history of the world. And it goes all the way back to the garden when Eve made a choice, a choice to pick a piece of fruit and to eat of that fruit to pass it on to her husband. She was surrounded by delectable delights, God's blessings all around her. But she chose the very thing that God had said, do not eat from that tree. She made that choice, a decision to become her own master, a decision to rule her own life. And that is the decision that humanity has made over and over again. But somehow, as human beings, we recognize that we must have people who rule over us, people who can organize our lives, people who can help us. But rather than turn to God and to godly leaders, we want a king. We want our own king. Esau's family had moved out from underneath the blessing of the covenant. They had chosen to leave God behind. And so they made their own kings. But that road, my friend, is a faithless trail. And I don't need God or anyone else to tell me what to do. That's a lie. God, like the 50s show, is the father who knows best. God does know what is best for you. He does know what is best for me. Without God at the center of our lives, like Esau's sons, our lives will be empty. A fruitless, faithless, covenant forfeiting life. So let's turn the page. Let's go on and let's look at Jacob. Jacob, the man of God. uh, Jacob, the the, the man who has the covenant blessing. Let's take a look at his life as we flip over to chapter 37. We're introduced to the journey of Jacob's sons. In the journey of Jacob's sons, we would expect to have hope. We've seen Jacob go from being a, a deceiving manipulator, a scoundrel, to a man of God, a man of faith, a a saved and blessed man. By God's grace, this this schemer has become a changed individual, living under the Abrahamic blessing, knowing the God of Abraham. We read in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Very important words. Esau left the land of his father's sojournings. He left the covenant blessing, but Jacob has remained in the land of his father's sojournings. He's remained in the land of promise. Oh, what great hope we have in this. The first-time reader would expect to see a great contrast between chapter 36 and chapter 37, but it doesn't take long to see that you're going to be disappointed. Disappointed with Jacob and with Jacob's sons. We start off by noticing how Jacob's choices cause a favoritism in the covenant. A favoritism. You see, during the the study of the lives of the patriarchs so far in Genesis, several times we have seen this mistake of parents. Parents. Parental favoritism. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that. And that none of you have ever done that in your own parenting skills. But we've seen it time and time again in this book. It happened back with Cain, which led eventually to the death of Abel. We've seen it with Isaac as he preferred Esau over Jacob and the disaster that that caused. And one would expect that Jacob, having seen the disaster in his own life, how he would have then not made that same mistake. But he does. Verse 3 makes that very clear. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other of his sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, let me sidetrack for a minute here. I know that in all of our Sunday school lessons and, and, you know, the the studies that we have, and even here in this text, uh, that we talk about Jacob and his multicolored cloak. Uh, The fact is, though, that nobody knew how to translate the Hebrew word that was, uh, that's translated multicolored, and so they kind of guessed here and there. The reality is, I know it's a bummer, but the word doesn't mean multicolored. But that's an important thing. See, historically that, that translation has come from the King James Version. It's been passed on even here into the ESV, which is based somewhat on the King James Version. It is in all of our Bible story books and even has made it as far as Broadway but the vast majority of biblical scholars have concluded that the Hebrew text is not talking about a multicolored cloak. Rather, it is a special coat representing the uniqueness given to one who is to be a leader, which makes far more sense in this text, doesn't it? Jacob was transferring the birthright from Reuben, who was his oldest son, to Joseph, who was the oldest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Jacob has chosen the favorite wife's son to be his heir, passing over the other ten sons. No wonder, then, there is animosity between them. Maybe it was Joseph's dreams that caused his father to think that way, or maybe the brothers thought that his father's favoritism had gone to Joseph's head and it was that favoritism that had caused Joseph to have the dreams we we don't know which way it was but Jacob's favoritism made everyone ignore God's warnings about what was coming in the future my friends few of us pass through life without feeling that someone else is the favorite that someone else is being treated better than me. And this has led to a tragic victim mentality that has gripped the United States of America. Oh, that we might think differently. That we might recognize that it is not by taking from the wealthy to give to the poor. It's not by making one person feel better than another person that we receive God's blessings. We can see it in the political polls. People will vote for whatever candidate is going to give them the most. To promise them that they will get more for me. Favoritism. Favoritism or a feeling of favoritism, whether it's real or whether it's imagined, leads to envy, jealousy, both of which are destructive, both to the individual and to the people around them. But notice how Jacob's choices also cause a fracture in the covenant. There's a favoritism there, and that favoritism is going to lead to this fracture. The family is now divided. It reminds me of the 12 disciples as they're headed towards Jerusalem where Jesus Christ is going to be crucified. He is going to give up his life as a sacrifice for sins, and he has told them that that's why he's going to Jerusalem. And what are they discussing? What are they arguing about? Which one of them is the greatest? It even leads to John and James' mother going up to Jesus and saying, you know, give me what I ask of you that one of my sons can sit on your right and one on the left when you come into the kingdom. And all the while, Jesus is moving towards Gethsemane and Golgotha. Jesus had told them he was going to Jerusalem and that they were going to kill him there that he was going to become a sacrifice, a lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. And yet we see human nature at its worst coming out in these disciples. Well, verse 11 summarizes the situation. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the sayings in mind. His brothers were jealous of him. Many of you know the rest of the story. Joseph goes to visit his brothers who are taking care of the father's sheep. They have traveled about 60 some miles away from the home so that they can pasture the the flocks that they have. Jacob arrives and the brothers grab him. They strip off this coat of leadership that he is wearing, this special cloak, they toss him into a cistern where they're going to leave him so that he might die. Perhaps of dehydration or even of starvation or perhaps a wild animal would get him. And the coldness and the crassness of their attitude towards their brother is seen in verse 28 because they throw him in there and what do they do? It says, and they sat down to eat. And they sat down to eat. Here they have just decided to kill off their brother. And it doesn't bother them. There's no sense of guilt, no sense of remorse. They have plotted his death. They've tossed him into the cistern to die. And they go back to their lives as if nothing had ever happened but is that any different than the way that most people live today? We pass by the tragedies of the lives of others. Maybe we hear about sex trafficking in our community. Or someone shares with us about a life trauma that they have. And we go, oh, that's bad. And we go back to eat. We go back to our daily lives as if nothing was wrong. We flip on our TV show to escape from any thoughts of anything. We grab a midnight snack as if nothing, nothing is wrong. Where is the remorse? Where is the sorrow? Where is the brokenness of spirit over the brokenness of a world? apart from the Holy Spirit of God, awakening in us an understanding of the plights of the people around us, awakening our conscience. We have become the masters of a seared conscience. Joseph doesn't die, however, as we know. Instead, Judah comes up with a better plan. Why just let him die when we can make something on this deal? Why not just sell him off to these Midianite, Ishmaelite traitors that are passing through? It's just as crass, but at least they're getting something for it. Instead of murder, it's greed. Let's gain from this evil scheme. No wonder the scripture says that the heart at its core is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, there's a third thing that we see here, and that is notice how Jacob's choices cause a forgetfulness of the covenant. Remember how I said that the words God and Lord were absent in chapter 36? Well, guess what? There's not one mention of God or Lord or any divine name in chapter 37 either. Four hundred times in the other 48 chapters it appears. But no, not one time does it appear in chapter 36 or in chapter 37. That's no coincidence. Though Jacob's heart has been changed, it is was, it, it was as the, the New Testament, Describes it. He is born again, yet he has allowed his spiritual life to diminish. The time change has occurred, but his spiritual life has not caught up to that time change. He has forgotten God's promises. And even though his family has gathered at the end of this whole story, the end of chapter 37, the family, these hypocritical sons, who know what has happened to their brother, but they're pretending to care about the father. As they gather together, verse 35 says, all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I will go down to Sheol to my son Morning. Where was the Jacob who in verse 11, like Mary in Luke 2, Mary the mother of Jesus, who had pondered these things in her heart? Verse 11 tells us that in spite of the fact that Jacob had corrected Joseph about these dreams, that it says that that he kind of stored those things up within. He he meditated on it. But where is that now? Rather than turning in trust to God who had given the visions to see these brothers and even his parents bowing to Joseph, Jacob of all people knows about dreams. He's had several of them himself. But he's forgotten God. Somehow, somehow, God has drifted in terms of his mindset. The God who had made promises to him. The God who had protected him from Laban. The God who had protected him from Esau. And yet, Jacob is despairing. He has become depressed. He is going to go through the rest of his life mourning. And by the way, we see that happen. For 13 years, Joseph is going to be down in Egypt as a slave. For 13 plus years, Jacob will not know that Joseph is alive. And in all of those times, his brothers tell Joseph, Our father is a broken man. He's forgotten God's promises, he has not sought after the God who has promised to carry him and to help him. He's drifted in his faith and allowed faithlessness to grow up. He is forgotten. Now it's time to pay the piper. His forgetting of God has come home to roost in his life. And sometimes I wonder, my friends, if it's true about you and sometimes about me. Have we drifted in our faith? Has what we know in our heads, the external, not yet become the internal, not yet become the reality of our hearts? Like the time change, when the body is not yet adapted, has our spirit not adapted to the truths of God's word? and the promises that he gives to us. In conclusion, is God an active part of your home life, first of all? Somehow, after Jacob's transformation, the reality of the God who had brought him through that all has not been brought into the family life. How many times we see that? A first-generation Christian, a a family member who has come to know Jesus Christ. They've they've experienced the power of the change of, of God within them. Their sins are forgiven. Their hope is in Him. But somehow it doesn't get passed on to the second generation. They become busy with their life. They become busy with the the activities. They become busy with trying to make sure that they have enough food on the table and a roof over their head and, and the right car and the right television and the right this and the right that. And somehow God has drifted to the side in their lives. And the second generation, the third generation do not sit to see that reality of the power of God at work in them. It happened to Joseph, is it happening to you in your life? Or to Jacob, I'm sorry. Do you live your life without daily reflection on God's covenant, on the promises that he's made, living in that covenant relationship? Is your life a proof of human failure or of divine favor? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to the communion meal. In the communion meal, we have a promise set before us. And that promise is that Jesus Christ has come into the midst of this world that those who are separated from God might be brought into a living vital relationship with him. And when we are justified, declared right by faith in Jesus Christ, you have given us a symbol of that, and that is baptism. Baptism. When we went into those waters of baptism, Lord God, you have said that it is as though our sins had been forgiven and washed clean and that we had died to our old self. We've been raised up to a new life. We are no longer Jacob, but we are Israel. And then you've given us the communion meal, the Lord's Supper. And in this, we are reminded that our salvation is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing activity of God in our lives and we are called, each month as we sit down to this meal, we are called to remember Jesus' death until he comes. To be constantly reminded of this new life that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. The faithfulness by which you have saved us and that should be the power by which we live day in and day out. Father, I pray for each one of us here today. I pray that you would work in us so that we no longer live as if we were, as Paul puts it, still carnal. We are still out there in the world living only for the things of this life rather than the things of eternity. Open our eyes, open our understanding, open our hearts to understand your character, your nature, the powerful life change that you can bring into us if by faith we will trust in Jesus Christ. And then, daily, let us live in the freshness of that. Let the external of our lives become the internal of faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.